If you're like me, when a new year rolls around, it's at least pretty tempting to want to kind of set some goals for yourself, right? You may, you may not go so far as to call them resolutions. You may not write them down, but at least there's some sense that, yeah, I'm going to uh, set some goals and kind of move in some certain directions in the next year. And my goals uh, generally tend to be about me, right? I'm going to lose a few pounds, read a few more books, travel more, save some money, maybe things like that. Our goals might tend to go that direction. But do we have any goals that affect others, that are actually goals that will do good in the life of others? We're going to look today at some ways that we can grow uh, in a way that benefits others, not just ourselves. We're spending this month doing something that we love to do here, and that is listen to Jesus. We're going to listen in on a couple of his stories, a couple more of his conversations, specifically through the lens of this question. Who are we as a church, as a people who call Outlook our church home? And throughout the month, we're going to see four themes continuing to emerge. Today, a couple of the ones that we'll, we'll find in today's uh, passage are these. We are people who serve and lead justly. We are people who share and give generously. Now, here's what I hope and pray happens in this series. If you're new to us here, uh, then I'm hoping you're, you're going to get to know us a whole lot better, that you're going to get a sense of who we are aiming to be as a local church. And if you're not so new, uh, I hope you'll begin to feel like you're new, uh, that you'll be renewed in your sense of what it is all about to be a part of a church and what we're uh, getting to experience here at Outlook. Today we're going to spend our time in Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25. If you have your Bible app, you can feel free to scroll on over there, or if you grabbed a Bible from the Bible carts, you can turn to Luke chapter 10. It says, starting in verse 25, one day an expert in the religious law, in religious law, stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question, teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Now, this is a big question, foundational question. Jesus, tell me about your way and what it means to walk in it, or at least tell me what I need to do to get to heaven. We don't know exactly what this guy might have been thinking, but he's asking the big question, eternal life. How do I get there? And Jesus replies, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? Now, it's interesting that Jesus' answer begins with directing him to go back to the source of all truth. If we're going to ask the big questions in life and questions about eternal life, then it's going to be the word of God that will provide us that answer. Go to the source, not the countless and often pointless opinions and theories of every pundit and personality out there. We have ours today. There were, they existed in Jesus' day too. Plenty of, plenty of people attempting to answer life's questions. And certainly don't go to yourself to answer that question. All by yourself, right? We, may, we could try to make up our own answer to that question. That's not where Jesus directs the man and so he gives him an answer. He gives Jesus an answer. He says, quoting from what we would call our Old Testament, from the Jewish scriptures that they're referring to, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, 
all your mind, all your strength and all your mind, pardon me, and love your neighbor as yourself. These verses are found in Deuteronomy and Leviticus, back deep in the Jewish scriptures. The key word, of course, in both of these commands is love. Love has always been the key word. Amen? And Jesus says to this guy, write, do this, and you will live. Love is the answer to life and living it. Love God, love others. Love, friends, is always the answer. Not greeting card love, not power ballad love, not rom-com love. We're talking actionable, wholehearted love. And it starts with God. All good things do. And it flows from there. Love God, love others. It's a simple answer. Yet, it is worth a lifetime of practice from you and from me. This reminds me of something that the Apostle Paul wrote. We're asking ourselves in this series, what, kind of, what does it mean to be a church? What does it mean to live together as brothers and sisters in Jesus? Paul teaches uh, in 1 Corinthians uh, about what it means to be a part of the body that is the church. And after he teaches about that, he makes this observation. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but I don't have love, I gain nothing. Again, this just, and there are countless scriptures that would reinforce this idea that the answer to eternal life, to life in God, to life in God's kingdom, what life is all about, the answer is always going to be love. Love in our hearts, love in the church. We read here, nothing is gained without love. Love is what makes it all count. Everything not done in love needs to be swept away. It comes to nothing. In some ways, I kind of see my job as one of the pastors of this church to constantly ask myself, in any conversation, in any meeting, in any program, and in every service that we get together in, is this an environment where love can grow and flourish and take root? Because that is what it is to be about. If we are ever creating environments in which love does not seem, it seems hard for love to thrive in that environment, then we're doing it wrong as a church. Amen? Love is what it's about. And this love we're talking about, it is readily available in my life and in yours through Jesus Christ. And ultimately, only discipleship to Jesus can cultivate this kind of love. In my 20 years here, I've heard countless people come and say, I feel love in this place. They visit they, and one of their first takeaways is that they just sense some love. I say that is a gift of God and something we cannot take for granted. I also know it flows from all of you. That you see what I'm talking about here. And you see it immediately, you see it easily, and you live it out. You've made this place a place of love. So, this is the answer. This is the question. This is the answer. But we're not finished. Verse 29, the man wanted to justify his actions. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So Jesus has said, yep, that's the right answer. Love your neighbor as yourself. 
Love is great, but who exactly are we talking about here? Love your neighbor, that sounds fine, but who is my neighbor? Or if we're being more audacious and honest, I think the guy's really asking who isn't my neighbor, right? He was an expert in the law looking for a loophole. So Jesus does what Jesus loves to do. He tells a story. Verse 30. A Jewish man, he says, was traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. This is a scene that anyone around at that time would have been able to visualize. There really was a well-traveled road between those two cities. There were places along that road that you needed to watch out. You were kind of vulnerable to robbers or bandits. This is a dramatic beginning to the story, but it is an accurate opening to countless stories lived all around us today and throughout human history. Someone attacked, someone fallen into the hands of robbers, bandits, thieves. Someone stripped, stripped of dignity, of resources, of opportunities. Someone beaten, beaten down, receiving the blows of life. Someone left for dead, neglected, abandoned, forgotten. Someone needing to be told that their life matters, that they matter, that they're seen and that there's, uh, they're not ignored. People are hurting. There's lots of opportunity for love in action. And Jesus makes that the central moment here in his story, this opening scene. Someone hurting badly. Someone falling into the hands of some um, tragic circumstances. The bandits in the story, they're among us today. Spiritually speaking, Satan is a thief. Jesus says as much in John 10.10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Much as like what's happened to our man in the story so far. Jesus says, I've come that they may have life and have it to the full. We recognize this as a church. We see that there are people hurting in the world and that there is a battle going on for people's souls and lives. And we understand that the way that we fight that battle is through loving those in need, not ignoring them as we're about to see. This is happening. This thief coming to steal, kill, and destroy, it's happening every day. It is not just a story. Jesus goes on, verse 31, By chance, a priest came along. When he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant called a Levite walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. Now, the story has gotten far more interesting. If you're listening to this in Jesus' day and you're hearing the two characters that he has just introduced, you're going to pay close attention to what they choose to do. And when you see that they don't do what you kind of are hoping they would do, you realize something is seriously wrong here. Every good story has tension, and here we see the ones representing the God of love, a priest, a temple assistant, being un loving. Our man is bleeding out and no one is helping him. Here we see spiritual leaders with religious authority are doing the opposite of what is needed and right. Let's reflect on this for a moment. In light of our question, 
What kind of church are we? Sadly, tragically, we live in an age of celebrity pastors whose churches are built around their personalities. Or an age of power-hungry church leaders whose egos drive them to demean and control people. Of abusive and exploitive clergy whose lack of accountability ends up damaging so many lives. All of this is heartbreaking. And I believe much of it comes from ignoring what Jesus said church leaders are to be like. Sorry, something's happening on my watch here. I'll be right back. Okay. All of what I'm seeing and saying there is heartbreaking. And I believe a lot of it comes from ignoring what Jesus says church leaders are to be like. We've been working on providing some leadership training here at Outlook. And when we began this work, Kate, our Connection and Care Minister, asked if I would jot down our overall approach to leadership here. And I'd like to share an excerpt of what I wrote there. Thanks for indulging me in this. I think how a church approaches this subject is vitally important. What many people think of when they think of leadership and what makes a leader has too often been informed by our culture rather than by Christ and Scripture. This has spawned no small amount of hurt, egotism, and even abuse in the church. So when we speak of leadership here at Outlook, we will be extra clear what we mean. Because Jesus taught us that we must think differently about this. At one point he said to his disciples, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. But you, he says, are not to be like that. Instead, the one who rules is like the one who serves. And whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. He said, I am among you as one who serves. I am among you as one who serves. Those words of our Lord should ring in our ears and hearts. And so should those words he spoke when he referred to worldly leaders. You are not to be like that. Many times there's too much of that in the local church. Leaders at Outlook are to be servants who care for others' needs. Students who teach by sharing what they themselves are learning. Followers who keep their eyes on Jesus and then gently guide others on his way. They lead by being the first to sacrifice and to serve. They lead by protecting and nurturing. They lead by leading by example. We may be tempted to define leadership as much of our culture does, according to authority. But instead, we must realize it's about responsibility. Put another way, in Christ's church, it's not about the authority one has over people, but the responsibility one has to serve them. This is how we see leadership. It's not about power granted, but about trust earned. That, I think, is an important distinction for every church and every pastor, honestly, to make. 
Now, in Jesus' parable, these two church leaders, so to speak, were putting distance between themselves and the man in need, the person they were actually called to serve. This is the opposite of what love does, and it should be deemed unacceptable from anyone in ministry. This is our view across our church. I believe that deep down, the world is aching for Christians, and Christian leaders too, but all of us, to be what we profess. But instead, too often, people who don't yet know Christ just see those who say they do behave in ways that are immoral and unloving. And that simply should not be. So we get the chance, and we're reminding ourselves this morning, to lead the way in our groups and on our teams. Lead the way to a better, fuller, realer love. Verse 33, the story goes on. Then a despised Samaritan came along. We talked a little bit about this last week. Samaritans ethnically were despised by Jewish people. Jesus is about to make one the hero of his story. A despised Samaritan came along. And when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. Now, the key word here, compassion, right? Love produces compassion, which expresses itself in justice. And I use that word on purpose because it's such such a good and useful biblical concept. Yeah, I get it. It's popular today to talk about justice and even assign that concept to all kinds of causes. But I believe it's actually something that we as God's people can confidently and compassionately live out. God is a God of justice, and any right definition of that term can't be done without turning to the Word of God. Biblical justice can't be ignored, but it also needn't be overthought. The concept is straightforward. Justice is setting a thing right. It's seeing something wrong, something broken, and doing what we can to set it right. So love, remember, love is the answer. Love God, love people. That was the the be-all, end-all that that was the answer to, to the question that was asked between the expert and Jesus. Love feels like compassion and looks like justice in and through the normal everyday acts of you and me. This reminds me of an Old Testament prophet named Micah, who at one point kind of also addresses the big question uh, of life. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? That's not unlike the question that the expert of the law asked. What's the way to eternal life. What does the Lord require? And here was the answer. To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. That perfectly encapsulates what we're talking about today and it's an answer that's millennia old. Now the religious leaders failed at this. They would have had this scripture. They'd probably memorized it since they were kids. But they failed at it. They failed where it counted. Instead, they just asked, what's in it for me? Where there's good to do, we here at Outlook, we try to step up and do what we can. We won't always do it perfectly. We won't always, we definitely don't have all the answers. But where there's good to do, we want to do it. And we'll do our best to give it a shot. 
or there's something that needs to be said, we'll do our best to say it. Whatever that looks like, we just want to do what this passage says. Our Samaritan was a true leader because he took the lead by service and by setting an example. Those first two were the opposite. This reminds me of something the Apostle James wrote when he said, suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes or daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed. What a nice kind of thoughts and prayers religious answer, right? But does nothing about their physical needs, here's the question, what good is it? See, justice, as the Bible would define it, stay with me, is the answer to that question. What good can be done here? What what is wrong that needs to be righted in some way? And James concludes in the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, that faith is dead. It's not really alive. It's not really moving and doing something in the lives of others. What all this kind of leads me to want to ask is, do I really care? Right? Do I really care? Not that I, do I want to care or do I say I care, but when I see the bold face actions of the three people walking along this path beside the wounded man, I got to wonder, do I really care if I read myself into the story? Remember the second guy, the temple assistant, he actually walked over and looks at the man lying there and then passes by on the other side. He was not moved with compassion. He did not take action. Instead, he calculated the cost to his schedule, his reputation, his convenience. Perhaps he wanted to define the terms. Well, what does justice really mean? And should we even be kind of getting involved in that? Or ask this man if he somehow, maybe ask if this man somehow deserved his plight. Who knows what was going through his mind, but it seems fairly obvious he did not care. What if we got as emotionally distraught about systemic poverty or church abuse as we do our favorite sports team's latest loss? Okay. I got a couple more, so here we go. What if we cared as much about the connection between childhood illiteracy and projected prison, in the projected prison population or the connection between pornography in human trafficking, as we do the connections between markets and politics that fluctuate our 401k or 403b? What if we devoted as much energy and attention to our spiritual health and the spiritual health of our fellow outlookers as we do our hobbies, our vacation planning, our appearance, or our careers? I know that got pretty serious right there. But I say these things because I love you all and because I know I need to hear them myself. I feel like they're the questions that get begged to be asked when Jesus lays out this perfectly crafted, convicting story. Verse 35, the story's not over. The next day he handed uh, the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, take care of this man. If the bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. It's interesting that Jesus includes this in. He could have ended it right there. He took him into the end. He took care of him. Isn't that great? But no, he, he keeps going. Jesus makes it clear that this man is acting through into the practical needs of the wounded man. Money, even, 
putting his money where his heart is, which is just as Jesus taught the way it works. Our, our hearts will follow our money and vice versa. He didn't hesitate to invest his financial resources in the setting of things right and in the doing of good. This too speaks of the kind of people we are here at Outlook. By giving their tithes and offerings to God in worship, many people support this church financially. I'd invite you to join them. Why? Because people need a place where love is found, where they're developed and encouraged, not judged or used where God is placed at the center of reality. They discover their dignity as his creation, as his children. Funding a healthy, solid, missional local church is really one of the best investments that any of us can make, one of the single most effective ways to make the world a better place. One of the ways to love mercy and to do justice and to walk humbly. I think of some of the things that uh, God's been able to do just even lately. I just thought of the things that just I've experienced in the last couple of weeks. I was meeting with Mike Wilkins, our pastor at Renewal Community Church, the church we had the privilege of planting just a little less than a year ago. They launched their first service. They had 100 people at their Christmas Eve service. Isn't that awesome? They're really doing great. Mike's having a blast, having the time of his life. Yeah, it is. It is. It's an answer to prayer. It's just a delight. Uh, love meeting with, with him and just hearing whatever God is doing uh, most lately there at Renewal. But folks, you are supporting that financially in huge ways through your giving to our budget. Um, and so I would just want to say thank you for that. We're making a major investment in, in the, the, the finances of that church so that it can exist. And it is absolutely part of our heart uh, and our mission for our local area. I also think of our pastoral care team. You may not even know it, but we have a, a team of outlookers who visit every homebound outlooker. Everyone who counts this as their church home, but is now in a place in their life in which coming to church is pretty challenging. So they're, they're pretty much homebound. We make sure every week they get a visit and they get communion. There's a whole team of people who do that. And I just conducted a funeral on Friday night for one of those folks, and he was so well cared for by the gentleman who was assigned to him and for years had been visiting him, and before that, his late wife, Tom Martins, one of our elders, who is also on that pastoral care team, just provided wonderful care to this gentleman named Leif Schultz. Tom even uh, was asked by the family to do his wife Margie's funeral a few years ago. That's how much love they experienced through this ministry of our church. Your giving helps make all of that possible, too. And then I think of our overall missions and outreach and benevolence budget and all the good that happens through that. Over 10% of our budget goes out the door here to ministries local and around the world. I was just on a Zoom call about a week and a half ago with our missionaries in West Africa who are working to translate the scriptures into a language that's never had the Bible in their tongue. We've been supporting them for years. This is slow and arduous work. You are funding that. You are helping make that possible. This is just a smattering of the kinds of things your generosity, your steady giving makes possible. Jesus did not hesitate to include this financial aspect in the, this uh, Samaritan's expression of compassion, mercy, 
and love. So our, our striving here at Outlook is simply to do steady things with great love. And the sacrifice, even financially, that that takes is a delight. And the investment and the fruit of those investments are a delight. Now, Jesus, having finished the story, turns back to the expert in the law and says, now which of these three would you say is, was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? <laughs> Great question, right? You know, this guy's wanting to know, like, well, who is my neighbor? And Jesus just lays this out, and the man replied, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, yes. Now go and do the same. Love God and love people. Here's the breakdown. Love God and love people. So as we wrap up this morning, let's ask, what's most important around here at Outlook? What is the mission of our church? I'm going to tell you. The answer, first, second, and third, is people. The mission of our church, first, is you. We're accomplishing our mission right now by marinating in and enjoying the Word of God. And as you go and then circle up in your small groups and get to enjoy life together in that way and support each other and study and do good in the world as every one of our groups does. And if you're not in a group, come talk to us, man, because that's really where church is happening. It's in our groups. We gather on Sunday morning. That's awesome. But man, it's in our groups that we really experience the life of what it means to be a part of this church. You are the mission of this church. And then we are the mission, us, we're the mission of this church. People as in cultivating the beautiful fellowship that is a congregation, man. Brothers and sisters doing life together, us, that's also part of our mission. But if we're not done, everyone, all people are a part. Who is my neighbor? Couldn't really be everyone, right, Jesus? Yeah, it is. Our mission is everyone. Everyone who lives around here and then all the good that we can do around the world, that's who we want to touch, and that's what we want to do. Our mission, first, second, and third, is people. Not the latest shiny thing, not the pastor's latest bright idea, draped in vision, so to speak. Not our brand, not our social media following, not our podcast downloads, not our budget, our building, our campus, or our programs. Those are all tools for the mission. The mission is people. Each human soul that we get the privilege to meet and to care for and to disciple. If the kind of church I'm describing is the kind of church you'd like to be a part of, let me invite you to something we're calling Membership FAQ. It's the first Sunday in February. It's after second service. Appetizers and child care are on us. It's just going to be a time less than an hour, but a time to sit and chat and learn a little bit more about what it means to join a local church and what that looks like here at Outlook. So who are we as a church? We are people who serve and lead justly. We strive to. We're people who share and give generously. We love to. This is our outlook. Let's take the bread and the cup here if you uh, grabbed one this morning. And just when we do this each week, we are reminding ourselves of who we are and whose we are, right? So when we take the bread and we realize that it represents a body given for us, the body of the Son of God, on that cross given for us, we learn something about ourselves. We learn that we are loved. So let's take and eat and thank him for that love. And when we take the cup, 
We're reminded of what that love costs, the sacrifice behind that love, the determination that we were worth that sacrifice. That's a thought worth drinking in, and let's do that together. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the, this, this really convicting and powerful story, Jesus, that you told to that expert in the law, that we could hear it again today anew and be reminded of what real love looks like. This is the way you chose to illustrate what loving a neighbor looks like when that question was asked. It requires sacrifice. It requires inconvenience. It requires investment. Um, and yet it is worth it because it's done in your name and it's done in your love. Lord, you saw us stripped, beaten, left for dead, at least spiritually speaking. You didn't pass by. You didn't ignore us when we were in need. You came and tended to us. You saved our lives, and we're thankful for that. Use us and teach us how to be vessels of that same love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.